inspiration. You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders. Welcome everyone. I'm Julie Goodnight, and thank you for listening to my podcast. It's all about horses and equestrian sports. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have time, I'd sure appreciate a review and rating. I've been getting some great feedback on the podcast, both online and in person. And I love seeing the five-star reviews. It helps me out a lot, and it helps other horse lovers find this podcast. So my heartfelt thanks to everyone who's left me a review. I enjoy reading your comments, and we love it when you have ideas for the podcast. And please, leave questions for our Q&A segment. Hey guys, this is Megan, Julie's podcast producer. Julie just got back from her women's riding and relaxation retreat with Barbara Schulte at the amazing Sea Lazy U Ranch in Granby, Colorado. While we were there, Julie and Barbara had so many inspiring conversations with the lucky group of riders who immersed themselves in this experience. So for this episode, I put together a few of the fireside chats that Julie and Barbara had exclusively for Ride On podcast listeners. We hope you enjoy it. Before we join the first conversation of the episode, here's a little background. Julie was telling the group a story about a super nice, well-trained horse, except for one dangerous behavior issue. As she was riding him in the arena one day, he kicked out at another horse and on a later occasion, lunged out to bite. This horse was nearly perfect in every other way. Gorgeous, obedient, eager to please, and a really nice temperament. There was just this one thing. And it was a big thing. If this behavior wasn't fixed, it could easily result in a dangerous situation, and it had to be addressed. This led into the conversation you're about to hear about how to move forward when training issues come up. The scientific basis of training is that we find the amount of pressure to motivate change. And you are far better using too much pressure one time then undercorrecting, 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 nagging horse, which develops into a horse that not only does not respect your authority, but he disdains you. Because you keep trying to act like you're in charge and he knows you're not. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's a sad truth, isn't it? Yeah. It's disturbing to me now. I used to be used to it, but we don't see it as much anymore. When people come to in my clinics with an extremely adversarial relationship with their but people end up there. They don't intend to end up there. Maybe that's something we didn't talk about this, but maybe that's something you thought about more. I'm sure you've seen. It. Um, sometimes it's fear-based. Sometimes people, when they become fearful of that horse, they start lashing out. Uh, yeah, one thing I've learned, and I've, I'm trying to understand how to help people that are in this bog get out of it. But we talk about the um, harsh correction. 
It is one and done. That correction lasted a half a second. And then it's over and it is as if it had never happened. We resume life as if it never happened. And I expect you will never do that again. I'm certain. I have so much faith in you, horse, that you will never do that again. And I can now trust you to be the best horse there ever was. So the problem is people go to correct the horse and then all of a sudden they're lashing out in emotion and anger. So they correct them again and again and again to the horse that the infraction is long over and now you're just abusing it. And so one of my biggest mentors in my career is a... He's currently a professor at Texas A&M, and his name is Dr. Jim Hurd. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Texas A&M. Yes. He used to be. It's awesome. Yeah. We still have but our He field. came down to where I live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyways, Dr. Hurd is a behaviorist, and... Um, and a performance horse. He's always been in the performance horse. He's coached some of the top, top Western performance horse riders. Um, equitation horsemanship kind of stuff. Um, and he's still active in that performance horse world, but he's a professor. And uh, anyway, one of the things that always resonated with me that he says is that emotions have no place in the training of a horse and you cannot become emotional and and furthermore it does not take a rocket scientist to watch somebody riding a horse to determine whether or not they are being emotional so in that let's say I'm dealing with an aggressive horse and he's attacking me in some ways charging me or threatening me um, and in that moment, we're, you know, it's every man for himself, and I know I'm going to win that battle. Um, and I'll take what, and I'll take whatever action it takes because in that moment he's threatening my life, he's charging me, barring his teeth at me, striking at me, or something like that. Now, that's of course action to get out of the way, but in case of a kick or whatever. But if you're working a horse in a round pen. And if he just gets in his head, he's going to see if he can back you down. And sometimes the horse will. Sometimes it's not even that dominant of a horse. If I don't now back him down, game over. So, um, but, so in that moment, even if that horse is charging me full bar, teeth bared, ears flat back, front feet flying, smoke coming out of his nose, I'm going to correct him with everything I have, obviously. But the second that horse retreats, I give him the opportunity to be a good horse. And if he wants to be a good horse, I'll bring him in and praise him and pet him and I like nothing ever happened. So there might be times when I use emotionality to train that horse or I bring up, where's Sam? The big. The getting big, the powers. <laughs> but the second that horse responds, I don't need it anymore. I'm done. So 
the when the emotionality takes over, that's when we see that person correcting, 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 jerking that lead multiple times, looking for ways to lash out at the horse rather than looking for the horse to be the right horse, the good horse. So that was a long. But but that's that's hard, just right in between there because your emotions do take over. And I think the fear does that. You know, maybe. Well, we don't have all night, but Barbara's still really great at addressing that kind of stuff. But fear, I, I I personally see the emotions of anger and fear be very closely related, and fear morphs into anger very easily. And however, I actually had a discussion with Temple Grandin about this. And she says fear and anger don't originate from the same place in the brain. So it's more that one is triggering the other, not that it's a similar emotion. Fear is about something in the future. Anger is about something in the past. And anger is really wrong. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Can you say that that's again? A very yeah. clear difference. Yeah. <laughs> I said that fear is thoughts about something in the future that you're imagining could happen. Anger is about something that already that, oh, you that's feel, awesome. that you feel resentful. And that so relates to what I was just saying. Thank you, Barbara, because I've struggled to understand. I see it before my eyes when I'm talking about this disdainful relationship thing. But I, I struggle, and I see the anger and I see the fear, but I struggle to understand how they're related. So so here's a little more. So um, <coughs> anger from a, a place of what? Of you doing what you want to do is a much more disabling emotion than fear. Because in anger, you have like a little bit of blame and you're really riled up and you just want to sometimes lash out. In fear, you take responsibility most of the time for your own emotions, but you just don't know what to do with them. You know, and when you use the tools that we talked about and you recognize anxiety, you can make conscious decisions about what to do. You can get into a complex. There's so much more information than I shared with you all because of the time that we had. But the, you can get to a place of calmness, and from there, you can make a decision about what to do. Anger is much more reactive. And actually, the worst one is blame. Because when you blame people or horses, you have no responsibility. And it's interesting because blame feels comfortable in a way, right? Because you don't have any responsibility. You don't have control of it. But anxiety is like, I have control and I feel like growing up. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. so how are blame and anger related? Or are they? Or I mean... Well, blame, blame is often um, extremely low negative energy. You don't have, you might not have physical energy. You emotionally, you've had it. You're burned out. You're ready to give up. So you blame other people. You think you blame things outside of yourself. 
The only way you can transform your emotion is if you're if you are self-aware and you take responsibility. Blame um, usually has very little energy and no responsibility. State we talked about for off and on for three days is high positive energy and total responsibility. Blame is no responsibility and extremely low energy. So it's much harder to get to the place where you need to be if you're in a state of blame. But when you start to listen to people, and maybe sometimes ourselves, it happens a lot. Because it's easy not to take responsibility. So I pay for it on Amazon. You can download it uh, for free digitally. Xenophon is S E N O P H O N. But anyway, in this book, although it is written from the perspective of training war horses, which, um, you know, first, historically, horses were a menu item. Then they became the suburban transportation, and then right up to war horses. Like, right, like, you know, many might um, be suburban transportation, immediately they became war horses, where their greatest, that's where their greatest value was. It's classical riding comes from. What you know of today is dressage, is classical riding, which comes from the training of war horses. Did anybody see the movie War Horse? Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. oh, kind of good. Cool. Kind of like this horse people go, really? Come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, so there are many tenets of classical horsemanship, all of which I believe in with every ounce of my being. And I know it to be the, you know, any knowledge that has withstood thousands of years and is still considered valuable, probably something to it. <laughs> Anybody that comes along today and tells you they have a new idea in horses, probably not true. Um, and um, also another thing that came to mind yesterday as you guys were talking, um, you know, it was um, Bill Dorrance that said, there's too much to learn in one lifetime. You have to learn about horses. You have to learn from other people all along the way. There's too much to learn for you to do it by yourself. And so whenever I hear someone in horses say, you know, I have the right way, all the other ways are wrong. That's a big red flag to me. Or when they say things like, you always do it this way, never do it that way. It's a big red, big red flag to me. Um, when they're close-minded to other training techniques and starting to promote this training technique as the only way. Okay, now we've got judgment coming in, right? Um, those are all big red flags for me because that's the, one of the greatest things about horses in the sport is you'll never learn it all. You can always get better. Horses always have something to teach you. And you know, both Barbara and I have worked with not hundreds of horses in our career, but thousands of horses in our career. 
And it, I know it's contrived and cliche to say you learn something from every one of them, but <laughs> So anyway, um, classical horsemanship, one of the tenets of classical horsemanship is all of training occurs in transitions. Transitions are a change of speed. I like to think of them as just a change. So I like to think of a turn as a transition, although it costs, technically it's not. Technically it's a change of speed, either between gates or within gates. That makes sense, everybody? Um, <clears throat> so we always want to practice transitions. So the training occurs in the moment of the transition. In other words, loafing around the arena for an hour while it is conditioning your horse, it is not training. The only training occurred in that hour was when you asked for the canner and when you brought it back down to the wall. So training occurs when you ask something of your horse and the horse complies. Well, that's good training. Because training also occurs when you ask something of your horse and he doesn't comply. <laughs> so um, lots of transitions. Now I'm not a big fan of stop, go, stop, go, stop, go. So as I said yesterday, in any group where we were working on stops, you always put a lot of forward motion in between every stop because the number one tenet of classical horsemanship is that forward motion is the basis of all training. Without forward motion, a horse cannot be trained. Never a true statement was made. Right? Have you ridden a horse on refuses to move forward? So, anyway, practicing transitions. So, I might pra practice, for instance, uh, from a collective slow sitting trot to an extended posting trot and back down and back up. So, it doesn't have to be soft transitions. But uh, I'm not, it's, it's, it's important to practice transitions, but sometimes you have to practice them at markers. So let's say these little squares are my markers, and I'm right, if I'm just riding my horse around this arena, and I go, I'm going to transition to the trot, and eventually my horse trots, but I was not using a marker, I haven't really learned very much about my horse. But if I say, when I get my shoulder even without marker, we are going to begin the trot there. Now all this time in here, I'm sort of preparing my horse, I'm picking him up, I'm putting some legs on him, I'm getting his attention. And then when I, maybe depending on the horse I'm riding, and every single horse is different, I may have started my cue here, may have started it back there. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if I've got that really fast, responsive going type of horse, probably going to be right here when I actually give that cue. So it's not just enough to practice transitions, we have to practice them on markers for precision. Not all the time, but some of the time. Every horse is different in how long he takes to transition and how long he takes to cue, and that's what the markers tell you. Okay? So if I was said I'm going to pick up the trot, right there, and then my horse actually probably looks right here and informs me of what I need to do next time in order to execute by the farm. Pretty fun, too, isn't it? No problem, next time. Next time. <laughs> <laughs> so the school figures, again, we go back to classical horsemanship. 
probably nothing in there you don't already know. Let's pretend this is the school. And so the school is the arena, and you define it however you wish it to be defined. Could be out in the middle of that pasture between four bushes. But you have a de definition to your school, and it is traditionally rectangular. In, and um, in about this ratio, and uh, cool, but wait, <laughs> and um, so then our school figures are precise patterns that we ride in the arena, all of which uh, serve uh, purposes in the progression of classical training. Straightness is a basis. Uh, so forward motion is a basis of training, um, and straightness is the basis of all forward motion. So to get a horse truly straight is one of the most challenging obstacles we face for the horse's entire career. So first we ride on the wall and we get straightness from the wall. It helps us uh, get that young horse straight through his body. We've got the wall as a guideline. Um, at some point we start coming down interior lines. This is called the quarter line. Now I, I've got the wall over there, maybe 15 feet away, as my guideline for straightness. But now my horse is like, you know, doing like this. And so we're going to work on straightness off the wall next. Um, another line that we come to in the school is the diagonal line, which is the longest, straightest line in your arena. So soon we start coming around the short side, or, mm -hmm. and then we come diagonally across the arena to get our longest line. So we might work on extended gates here. This is a bending arcing turn into the corner. And when we come across the diagonal line, it always involves a change of direction. Um, so pretty soon we start coming into circles and serpentines. So serpentines, technically would come before circles because it's a half a circle. So a serpentine is a half a circle followed by a straight line, followed by a half a circle. So this is where my half a circle was, followed by a straight line. It is the transitioning from the bending half circle to the straight line that is most meaningful. It is the learning to set the arc in your horse for the circle before you start the half circle, riding that perfect arc, bringing the horse out of the arc. Youngsters, we do what's called a really shallow serpentine. Um, those of you that have done clinics with me, I talk a lot about the, the importance of changes of direction in your horse. Whether you're groundwork or in the saddle, the more we change directions of the horse, the more authority we gain over the horse. So this starts with shallow serpentines. I do have to do this a lot with Pepper when he's getting worked up about something. We just start on shallow serpentine. So a little bit of a left turn and a little bit of a right turn. I'm not worried about the half circle and the perfect bending and the arcing. We're just kind of arcing this way, arcing that way. So then we have, you know, in our school figures, complete circles. So a circle always begins and ends at the same spot. So Laura's my marker here. So if I'm properly riding that circle, I'm coming along and 
right about here. I set an arc in my horse, so I'm going to ask him to move his ribs and bring his hip and his nose to set the arc of the circle right here. A perfect circle begins and ends in the same place. We write our circles in quarters. So there's my start. So as soon as I pick a starting point, I immediately pick a halfway point. Then I backtrack to the quarter mark. And then I ride the first quarter in a striving for a perfect arc. Now I've got my eyes on the halfway mark, but I need my halfway mark here. So I'm gonna take a mark there, trace back to here, and then ride this quarter of the circle. Now I'm checking in. Am I halfway around my circle? Good. Back to the quarter mark. Ride the quarter circle. So all along, I'm, I'm looking at my markers, which may or may not be there. You know, it may be a pile of manure. I don't usually have people in my clinics ride a lot without stirrups because they just be trash at the end of the day. Especially in a free days or a weekend or whatever. So, but I am a very, very big advocate of it. I personally spend a lot of time riding without my stirrups. There are no accomplished riders in this world that didn't spend a lot of time riding without their stirrups. Your stirrups can be your best friend sometimes. <laughs> but they can be your worst enemy and you can reliant on them. If you haven't ridden bareback in a long time, <laughs> try it. I mean, I grew up riding bareback in my bathing suit. I grew up in Florida, not here. <laughs> and I could do anything bareback. And then a number of years ago, my number one horse had a back injury, and as the back injury was healing, I was able to ride it, but I wasn't able to saddle it. I'm like, no problem. I'll ride bareback this winter. And uh, the first time I sat on that horse, dawned on me right before I was like doing this. <laughs> I was like, when was the last time I rode? <laughs> and I sat down and it was like, it's like 20 years ago. I had a similar experience with jumping. Mm. I was like, oh my God, do I still know how to do this? And I mean, my heart was racing. <laughs> riding the brokest horse in the world, you know, you can't, it's not like the horse was going to do something. Anyway, and I, I, I distinctly remember bringing him up to a trot, you know, and my, my heart was racing, and then, and especially when it's got them up to low, but, and also, I distinctly remember going, oh my God, I didn't know how hard this was, or I didn't realize how reliant on the saddle I had become. So, um, Anyway, it was fun. I did ride all in my bare Good exercise, good balance training. But riding without your stirrups with your leg in a correct position is going to develop all, hone all kinds of skills. It's going to develop strength in your legs. It's going to hone your balance. It's going to require you to ride correctly with your legs and not with the stirrups. So I'll challenge you for that. Be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com slash academy for more in-depth training advice. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate your good review on iTunes so more horse lovers just like you can find my podcast. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride.